What would our world be without leaders, innovators, and kingdom builders? Welcome to Under the Crown, where you get inside the twisted minds of our host, Trey Carmichael, and the kings and queens in his circle. Covering leadership, marketing, sales, recruiting, management, and so much more. Under the Crown is here to help you build your kingdom. Are you prepared for the siege? What's going on, guys? It's your man here, Trey Carmichael, coming at you with another episode of Under the Crown. Today, I've got the one and only Kyrie Oliver in the builder building. Thanks for coming on on today, man. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, man. So let's let's dive right into it. You've got a very incredible story. You grew up in a mobile home, and then recently you had the freedom and ability to retire your wife in just six months. How does somebody go from there to having those kind of resources and freedom in their life mm. so yeah I, I lived in a trailer up until i moved to arizona actually like seven years ago um <clears throat> I, I mean a part of it is something you can't get around i worked for like 16 to 18 hours a day for like two years to just build something like i think the most i made over that period was probably like 2500 bucks in a month maybe three thousand like if i was lucky um but like my rent was over half of that and car payment and everything else like i ended up at negative money at the end of every single month even when i moved here um but it was i think it was just a disgusting willingness to do any and everything in order to, to figure out like some form of baseline for myself so i think we all look at like the big numbers that other people are doing and say oh i want to do that and what a lot of people, and I realized, you know, after getting somewhat successful, I realized that a lot of people are so focused on the big numbers that they forget to like get your head above water, get to like the five, six, seven thousand dollars a month, and then you can start looking at what do I do now. But I think what people forget when they're looking at the really big numbers is how to build that foundation. So I'm glad I was willing to and patient enough and young enough to build that foundation, like. Let me just focus on getting a consistent flow of clients in. Let me serve my clients really well. Let me get people to stick with me for a while. Um, so I would say consistency is probably the biggest thing. Awesome, man. So yeah. you talk about helping people conquer the world inside our minds. What does that actually mean to you? And what was it that you had to conquer yourself? Yeah. I think it's different for everybody, but it's it's conquering like those deep dark corners of your of your mind and of your psyche and like how you feel about yourself how you feel about uh what's happened to you so far in your life uh, that's probably the biggest shift that we make is helping to rewrite the story i've told myself about my life so far and about my life going forward because uh, until you claim ownership over those stories the stories are just what you've been told to think or your snap reaction to those things which usually isn't an accurate or healthy healthy representation of those stories. So it's just reanalyzing everything that I've told myself about my life so far, what other people have done to me, what I've been through, what I've sucked at, what I'm mad at myself for, what I'm glad that I did. So you kind of meet all corners of yourself. I, I did it through 
um, I would look in the mirror for about an hour, three times a week. I would, in the trailer that I lived in, I would put my phone on the other side, TV off, everything off, and I would stare at myself in a mirror. And I think that's when you actually meet yourself. People don't spend a whole lot of time, almost any time, sitting alone with themselves where you don't like give yourself an escape. You got the phone, you have social media, you have something else that you can do. Where I spent so much of my time literally doing none of those other things and just sitting with myself and you meet every piece of yourself while you're doing that. And so I would say that mixed in with just, I'm willing to do any of this and all of this in order to build myself a foundation. It's what's allowed me to transcend that foundation and build something a little bit better, more comfortable. So what was it that drove you to the men's work so passionately? I think it was that process that uh, was probably the catalyst of like, oh, I just don't see people doing this. I wasn't told to do it. I don't know how the idea popped into my head to do it. Um, but I realized how massive of a catalyst it was. And I started looking around. I started interviewing people too. So I've interviewed over a thousand people, um, any type of person you could possibly think of, like monks, millionaires, billionaires, homeless people, uh, three death row inmates. I did end of life interviews. So I interviewed people who were terminally ill. I wanted to know what I'm going to think at the end of my life. So I just got a really good view of, of how people view themselves in the world around them. And I think what launched me specifically into the men's work was for a lot of the men, a lot of the, I believe that men shape the world. And I believe that everybody else is a branch off of the men in their lives including women. I think so much of, of how women, who women become is a direct result of the men in their lives. I think who men become is a direct result of the men in their lives because this, is, this was the thing. And I think about this with my kids too. If I mess up raising my daughter, she's gonna destroy herself, right? She's gonna implode. If I mess up, building up my son, he's going to explode and it's going to affect everybody else around him. Most of the time when, again, when women start spiraling down, it's an implosive thing. It's a, I don't feel okay about myself. Therefore, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to go within. I'm going to harm myself in some way. For men, for the most part, it's I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to harm other people. So I realized that that was a much more like far spreading spider web was changing the way men view themselves would also impact everybody else as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you said that you did end of life interviews with people. I'd actually like to hear a little bit more about that and what you learned from those. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it was insane. Um, Cause I was, dude, I was 19 when I was doing this. So I was like between 19 and 21 is when I did most of those interviews that I did. Mm -hmm. And, um, I kind of same thing here. Like I came in with a list of questions, but the the conversation always derailed into something else. Like some of them would turn into four or five hour conversations. Um, and I, I just got obsessed with how people viewed themselves and like what created your current view of yourself. And I think at the end of your life, you just have more data to go off of as to why you feel the way you feel about yourself, the world around you, your family, your role in life. What's going to happen after you die? So I just wanted to learn all of that. And I had the benefit of being an innocent kid at the time. 
where I think they were more open with me than if I was in my 40s coming in to interview them, like for a TV special or something. I was just an innocent kid to them. I'm at the beginning of my life. And I think they were willing to be a little bit more open with me about who they've been across the timeline of their lives so far. And I think that became an obsession of mine for a minute. Like, I couldn't get enough of those conversations. So what's the right way to ask this? I imagine that going into it as that kid, you had a preconception of what you thought built up the way that people see themselves. How did that evolve through the process? And like, how do you think that people really develop that after having all those conversations? Yeah. So I think I had an idea of it. Um, so I had already read my favorite book, actually. I send it to all my clients now. Um, it's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust survivor. And he developed this, like, I don't want to say it's a coping technique, but like this mental, I guess, technique called logotherapy, where you, you're essentially telling things what they mean to you. You're getting to ascribe meaning to something uh, even when it's it either looks like it's meaningless or like there's nothing positive that can come out of it, like there's an authorship that it helps you create within your own life and your own experiences. I get to choose what this means to me. This doesn't just mean something negative and that's it and it stays there. This is allowed to mean something else or this is allowed to also be a lesson which would turn this into something positive. So I wanted to see how we like shaped our views of ourselves and the world around us. And I think through the conversations, because every time it started coming into a story, people would start telling me stories. People would start, I would ask a question about them or how they view themselves or how they view something around them. And they would tell me a story about it. And I think that's what made me draw the connection was our view of ourselves and the world around us, which we could say is our identity, is made up of a bunch of stories, a bunch of anecdotes we have along the way. Mm. yeah mm. that's fascinating i've really never thought of an identity really just being made up by a bunch of stories but at the end of the day it's really the it's the only way that you can communicate your identity to somebody is just to tell the stories that made you who you are so yeah i have to that, share myself, I have to share myself. It, it's hard because because once we realize that, we then have to realize, like, most of the stories I'm telling myself, I didn't opt into. Mm. I didn't subscribe to the email list. Like, they were given to me by my conditioning, by my parents, by the people around me. Like, most of the stories I had given myself about my life so far up to that point were given to me by somebody else or by my own lack of knowledge that I had anything to do with them. And then as soon as that kind of clicked, like, oh, I can rewrite these if I want to. I, you then just start going back and rewriting a lot of the stories. So what did that, what did that process look like for you? What were the first stories you needed to go back and rewrite? It was stories with my dad, for sure. Um, and I think that was, again, it kind of launched into the men's work was rewriting um, what had been only painful into what could become powerful. And I think that's kind of the theme of a lot of the stories. Like when you start reclaiming authorship over these is 
like pain to power. I think there's like a book around it. I know a bunch of people taught things around it, like turning trauma into triumph, all the cool little, uh, you know, pretty things to say about it. But I think it was turning a lot of like what, what had been just seen as pain and then only been seen as something negative. I'm going to squeeze something positive out of it. And I'm not going to stop retelling myself the story and redigging into the story until I find something good in it. And I just started doing that over and over again. So for a lot of men, they have a hard time even starting that process. Like most of them don't want to be alone with themselves. They have a hard yeah. time starting the conversation with somebody else. How do you get people to, I guess, face that fear of like the vulnerability and opening up about it? Yeah. Well, so the people I work with personally, it's a lot easier um, because they already like know, like, and trust and respect me. And so I can give them the context of nothing you're going to tell me about yourself is going to like massively shake me. I've interviewed killers. I've interviewed predators. I've interviewed like the most terrible people and some of the most amazing people you can possibly think of. Nothing you're going to tell me about yourself is going to like shake anything in me. Anything that you give, we can handle. And then if it feels like there needs to be like some professional help, then I'll gently guide them kind of toward that as well. If it's something that I don't feel comfortable, you know, dealing with with them. But I think even everybody else who doesn't come in and work specifically with me can start doing similar to what I did. And I, it kind of like, I call it like caveman style personal development. It's just kind of beating your head against the wall until something happens. But I think it was like just giving yourself let's say 10 minutes a day, just sit there and stare at yourself and just see what comes up and then promise yourself, one, I'm going to handle anything that comes up. I'm going to actually look at it. And then if anything gets too big, I have to be willing to go seek help. Like that was the big promise I made myself was if anything came up that like felt scary or felt like it was, you know, shaking me too much, like to my core, I would go seek professional help. And luckily it never got to that point. But I know for a lot of people, like there's just different experiences that hit them a little bit differently, where as long as you're willing to do that, then I would say at least sit down and start looking at who this person is, who am I, what do I, what do I believe and why, like what has shaped how I view myself so far, if I don't like where I'm at, why, if I haven't liked where I'm at for a long time, why. That's a powerful thing and that's somewhere that anybody can actually start. A lot of people have a, um, a lot of people say, oh, just go find yourself, be your authentic self. They throw all these words around, but very rarely does anybody actually give somebody a place to start. Yeah, go sit by yourself. That's the thing, though. Like, when, it, when people say I'm finding myself, it really means I'm going and fucking around and doing crazy stuff. Like, what, I'm, what I think I found people mean when they say I'm going to find myself is I'm going um, to indulge myself. Mm. usually it's an avoided thing mm. makes sense so i would like to go back just a little bit you said that you interviewed some of the worst people in the world as well what were the lessons that you gained from those interviews in particular i mean there's there's specifics because like we've all watched like serial killer documentaries and like killer videos and stuff like that 
Um, so like there's specifics in what made those people turn that direction, but it was still made up of stories. So I'd say like the theme is common, the uh, experiences are uncommon. So the, the theme was still like, that was kind of the hard thing is I was able to connect them to regular people. I was able to connect a lot of their story to other stories that I had heard of people who actually turned out to be like really great people. And then typically there was just like one or a series of decisions that landed them in doing what they did to, to you know, be in prison. Um, but I found a lot of similarities between them and other people. The decisions that resulted from their beliefs and their stories around themselves were different, but the stories were very similar to everybody, to other people's. Well, are there any, I guess, common themes in the stories that you're seeing people tell themselves the most? Common themes. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones is that, like, we all want to be the hero of our own story, right? And in order to do that, we feel like we have to have a villain. And so I've realized that the happiest people didn't have a villain in their story. There was nobody who needed to be terrible in order for them to be great. And that was probably the biggest shift I saw for myself, too, was now who are the villains in my story? And I could go reanalyze that, too. But the people who were genuinely happy, who I viewed as like, this is just a person who is like beaming with what all of us, I think, want. They didn't have a villain in their story anymore. And then they would talk me through the process of getting rid of the, like their own villain. And again, it was rewriting stories. I thought this person was out to get me. I realized that the big monster under the bed was me in the first place. And I, I talk about this a lot with, uh, with clients, like, I can't do this. I'm not allowed to do that. Um, I don't feel good enough to do this. Uh, what if this happens? I think there's always the what if of the future. And I tell them, you're scared of monsters under the bed. You don't know that they're there. You just assume that something is going to come out and snatch you as soon as you try this thing. And I said, what you'll realize at the end of this, you're not going to realize it yet because you have to be scared for a little bit longer until you realize my desire for more has to overcome or has to overpower my fear of failing. You're not going to realize it yet, but eventually you're going to look under the bed and you're going to realize you were the monster under the bed in the first place. You were the only thing that you had to be afraid of. I talk about this with guys a lot in relationships. Well, what if something happens? I say, who are the only two people who can make something bad happen in your relationship? Well, me and her. Well, I just feel like eventually something's going to fall apart. Something's going to whatever. Something's going to do this. And what we end up coming back to almost every single time is you're afraid you're going to mess up. You're afraid you're going to do something that tells you that you're undeserving of the person that you actually want to be with. And I think people do it to themselves too. You feel like you're going to mess up in business. You're going to mess up in your career. You're going to mess up in your profession. And you're going to feel undeserving of the outcomes you say you want then you're going to naturally sabotage and make sure that the success doesn't happen because you feel undeserving of it in the first place. Hmm. That's powerful. That, uh, that leads me with a little bit of something to think about as well. I definitely have some level of self-sabotage level at times when it comes to things. 
I think we all do. I think we all do too. Yeah. So I have a pretty big question for you now. What stories do you think men are telling themselves about masculinity? Mm, well, that's, I think the base story is we're still living in, you know, masculinity is like brash, brazen, uh, conquer the world kind of masculinity. I think this is why men love comparing themselves to like world conquerors. Uh, I just got on Twitter like seven, eight months ago. And I see it all the time of like, you know, I'm the new Marcus Aurelius. I'm the new Genghis Khan. What are like the big names? I'm like, you're just like, objectively, you're not. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're like running a business. You're not taking over countries. And so I think there's like this grandiosity that we tell ourselves um, that allow us to be courageous. And what I help people or try to help people do is realize you're allowed to be courageous without needing to see yourself as like this big bad monster as well. I'm allowed to be powerful without being uh, brazen and boisterous at all times. I'm allowed to be this and calm and collected and still not be disrespected or still not be taken advantage of. And I think that's more of what masculinity is supposed to look like than what we've been told, you know, pretty much forever. So, there's a lot of men out there who are still very confused about the concept and they don't necessarily know where to go to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem like a very good source for that. So what does working with Kyrie actually look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I typically only work one-on-one right now. I'm building out a course. I'm filming the videos for the course. That'll be a lot more like widely accessible. Um, but I pretty much only work with entrepreneurs, business owners, um, you know, people have been making a good amount of money to work with me at this point, but I'm trying to make it more accessible to, to more people. Makes sense. Yeah. So you've been able to make not six, not seven, but over nine figures for your clients in your career. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes the difference with you being able to go out and achieve that for them? I think all of it came back to the human psychology. Like I realized most marketers were antisocial and didn't really want to understand people. They were good at numbers. They were good at analytics. Mm -hmm. They just relied on that. And I realized that I was already good with people. I just had to learn the numbers and learn how to analyze data um, and understand trends. But I think my ability to accurately deduce how somebody the consumer is going to see this and experience it is what's helped me the most with marketing Mm. yeah it was just being like the opposite of most other marketers i found which were looking for the next trend the next wave of of like cute marketing tactics i always just stuck with what are people looking for if i can get my head into the like into the mind of the consumer i can better understand how they would want to be approached by this Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that you found kind of the same that most people find is that if you're not doing the work on yourself, all of those stories that you're telling yourself, all of those things that you're experiencing, they're going to slowly creep their way into your business and affect the money that you're actually capable of making as well. Yeah, people like to separate the two. I I find it hilarious. Um, 
because I again I work with a lot of like really really successful business owners, far more successful than I am, and they believe almost all of them at the beginning of at least when we meet each other, they believe that their business and their personal lives are separate. And then I start drawing all the connections. I listen enough so that I can get enough understanding. And then I just start drawing parallels with them. I just start showing them where it's showing up in their life and in their business. And so even though they're successful, what we find out and what we realize is I'm a fraction of how successful I could be if I had changed my personal life, knowing now that it, it actually doesn't impact my business. Yeah, you're the same person. Like, you're not a different human being when you step into the office or when you step onto a Zoom call. You can pretend to be a different person, which most people are doing. You can put on a facade or you can put on a mask that pretends to be something else, but your internal structure is the same. You're, the way you process information and emotions and uh, difficult things that go on is the exact same, no matter how much you're pretending it's not. Mm. Yeah. So how do you personally carry the weight of your crown and take care of yourself so you can show up at the highest level for clients, the wife, the kid, and yeah. everyone else? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad because part of it, I think, was just embedded. I think that's one of my gifts. I can carry a lot, like a big load, a big emotional load, a big mental load. Like I think naturally I can carry a lot and I've learned to grow it even further past that. Um, I have people who need something from me. I mean, multiple times since we started this, I'm getting blown up by people, plus the wife, plus the kids. I was just talking to a, actually one of my good friends and clients about this last week. Um, he has a new girlfriend and like totally shut himself off from everybody else for a month. She flew into Arizona. Uh, she was staying with him and then I didn't hear from him for a month. They came to my daughter's birthday party and then like dark. And he calls me every day. Oh, not so much every day, but probably at least three or four days a week. Yeah. He calls me about like, even just to chat about something random. Like we are very good friends. Mm -hmm. um, and then it went to like radio silence. And then he texts me and I text him back immediately. I said, I'm assuming she's gone. And he was like, yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> I was like, because you're texting me now. Like, you've been sunken into just this one thing for the last month, mm -hmm. which is understandable. Brand new relationship, understood. And you have to learn as a man to start balancing these things. Like, he was around my, when my wife came around. And he was a client of mine when I first started dating my wife. Imagine if I just said, hey, man, I'm going to start, like, you know, every few meetings, I'm going to skip or, hey, let's push this back, or, hey, let's do this differently. Like, I'm not allowed to do that because I have responsibility to other people. Now, he was still serving his clients. Like, he was still doing his obligations. But the ability to balance multiple things, the relationship with the work, with the friends, with the family, friends and family got put on back burner, and work and new girlfriend got pushed to the front. And one of the, like, we talked about it, and I explained, I'm not angry at you about it. Like, I knew that this was going to happen because of how much you wanted a good, healthy relationship. As soon as you got it, you just wanted that and like accidentally push everything else back. It's not that he was doing it to be malicious. And one of the things he asked when I got done talking to him about it, he was like, dude, how do you do this? He's like, I, as you're telling me this, because I said we, we prioritize what's important. And when our time is limited, we're going to show ourselves whether we say it or not. We're going to show ourselves and everybody else what's most important to us. 
mm-hmm. on accident. I'm not even going to know that I'm doing it. And that's what he did. He showed what was most important to him on accident. And then he felt bad about it. And I just said, you have to raise your capacity now. I like went from myself and my clients to adding my now wife to adding my daughter now to adding my son. But none of those things get to slip because I'm the one wearing the crown. I'm supposed to learn how to do this. I'm supposed to learn how to juggle it all. So again, I think my capacity was already high. I think I've had to learn to increase my capacity as I add responsibilities to myself. I think what a lot of men try to do, especially right now, is escape responsibility. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. I don't want to be you know, faithful to the, to the same woman. I also see it show up all the time and I have brand new business ideas all the time and I can't stick with anything. I think that makes us frivolous. The avoidance of responsibility makes us frivolous. And I think it's okay when I'm 20, it's okay kind of when I'm 25, but I get to 30, 35, 40. How does the world look at me? And I start talking to guys like around, I'm 29, guys around my age and I start asking them like, what do you look like at 35 with this same lifestyle? Or the guys that you see at 35 with the same lifestyle, even if you don't say it, you think they're a loser. What'd you do wrong? You don't have a wife and kids. You don't have a sustainable business. Like you don't have the, the your core offer. You're always jumping around to, you know, uh, I was an e-com guy and then I turned to NFTs and crypto and now I'm in AI and now I'm doing this. Like th- those personality types are the people who are skirting responsibility. So. I think the way that you wear the heavy crown and allow the crown's weight to increase is to raise your capacity for responsibility. So has there been any, I guess, systems or specific boundaries that you've had to consciously put in in order to make sure that none of those people feel neglected? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think boundaries is probably the biggest thing is being super clear on what is and is not okay and at what times. So like my clients come in understanding that if you ever get a text or message from me over the weekend, that's a gift. That's not something you can Mm -hmm. expect from me. That's an extra gift and you're welcome. Or if you get a text from me or a message from me beyond 5 p.m., that's a gift. That's not something you're allowed to expect. That's not something you can message me at 6 p.m. on Friday and they get mad at me Sunday morning because I haven't responded yet. And I would tell them, I just had a client do it last weekend. Brand new client, didn't like maybe pushing a boundary a little bit. He texts me on Friday evening. I don't respond. Or I think I said, let's talk Monday. He texts me on Sunday morning. Hey man, we need to get to this. Awesome. Monday morning is when we're going to get to it. And then he got a little bit angry. We get on a phone call and we're fine in like two minutes. And I just explained to him what the boundary looks like. It's not that I'm mad at you. It's not because we had kind of a contentious conversation before then. Um, It's not that I'm angry. It's not that I don't like you anymore. We're still cool with each other. And here's what my boundary looks like. No, No emotion attached to it. Here's what my boundary looks like for everybody. It's not just you. It's not just because we had a tough conversation before we ended the week. This is what the boundary looks like no matter who you are including family, including friends, including anybody else, you get to just have what the clear boundary looks like and people get to opt in or they get to opt out too. That's okay as well. Like I think getting comfortable with people leaving is also okay 
as long as your boundaries are enforced from a place of this is what's right, not as an emotional response to somebody doing something. I think that's how people start off with boundaries. I do it a lot like with people who are in relationships. Hey man, you need to start setting a boundary here. And what the person will do is pendulum swing completely to like aggressive, hey, you need to do this because I'm the man and I'm the blah, 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 blah. And what we realize is eventually I think we can settle back down to like, I'm enforcing boundaries because it's the correct boundary, not because I haven't enforced it for so long that I feel like I need to like full momentum swing into being like a full on enforcer of those boundaries. Yeah. I can calmly enforce and just say, hey, this is what this looks like in your interactions with me. I don't care what you do outside of that, but in your interactions with me, this is how I'm going to be approached. Mm, that's powerful, man. Is there anything else that I should have asked you in this interview that we didn't touch on that you'd like to leave people with? Oh, well, I have no clue. Um, yeah, I have no clue. Cause like we could, I could talk about this stuff for four or five hours. So yes, and I don't know what it is. I think the questions have been awesome so far because it, it's making me think and kind of dig into the process. Awesome, man. Well, what is the best way for people to see more of Kyrie? Yeah. That's it for this episode of Under the Crown. I hope you pick something up that makes your crown just a little bit lighter. If you did, I hope you'll take a second to leave us a review and let us know what it was. At Hephaestus Global, we are working hard to bring entrepreneurs and creators like yourself valuable resources and content that can help you get to the next level. If you feel that you have a story or expertise worth amplifying, make sure you head over to HephaestusGlobal.com to learn more about how you can amplify your message. You can also learn more about how we can become your megaphone and board of advisors to amplify your message to the right audiences while crafting a positive narrative around you and your brand.